Good morning. It's good to see you today at Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey, and if you're new here, just like Jason said, I want to welcome you. I'm the pastor, and uh, today we're continuing a series that you just saw kind of previewed called How to Beat the Odds. And the series has really been around uh, just some practical tools, how to change some of the mindsets and, and adapt some of the toolkits that we can use in our lives to beat the odds, that none of us in this room want to be in that statistical norm or that just in an okay life. That we want a better marriage, we want better relationships, we want a better connection, we want better purpose, we want better finances. That most of us, we, we hunger for better and more. And this uh, series, September and October, we've wanted to kind of just zoom in and say, okay, what's some of the practical things that you and I can do and begin to change in our lives that can move us towards a life with better decisions and fewer regrets? And uh, if you're kind of just catching up mid-series, I would encourage you to kind of go back and uh, grab a few of them. There's some Greatest Hits album that we could kind of produce out of it, where it's just some really practical, life-changing, impactful tools that has been impacting my life and many of the people that you see sitting around you. Uh, today, I want to kind of pick up on where I left off. Uh, last week, I left you with this idea that better voices in our life can lead to better choices in our life. That oftentimes, that behind the choices that we make, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult, whether you're just getting started in your marriage, or whether you're trying to navigate a divorce, that oftentimes the choices shaping our lives had voices behind them. And that if you can begin to identify the voices shaping your choices and start to invite better voices in your life, then what can happen is that you start to move towards a place with better choices. And that I recognized last week, like I said, that, um, that there are a lot of voices that are speaking into our lives. And so last week, I just focused on the external voices. And I recognize for many of us, it's not the external that's our battle. It's the internal that is our battle. And so today, I want to press into the internal voices that are often shaping our choices. Some choices we're not even aware that it's impacting. To begin, I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment. If you're new, I'm very quite different, and we'll do a lot of different things. So um, you just don't be surprised by that. And uh, so here's what I want you to do. If you're sitting on this left side of the pole, right, you are group A. If you're on this side of the pole, you're group B, all right? None of you are going to have to walk on stage or do anything like that, so you can take a deep breath. But group A, group B. And what I want to do is I want to recreate a psychology experiment. I want group A and group B both to close their eyes. Group A, I want you to imagine you're a sports fanatic, but not just like what we know sports fanatics should be, like Red Sox fans and Patriots fans and Celtics fans. I mean soccer hooligan, the type that you see on television, the ones who get arrested because they break bottles and stab people, those kind of crazy people. Imagine that's you. Picture yourself wearing a jersey, make it up, screaming, running around, getting arrested. The group B, here's what I want you to picture. You are a Harvard PhD. You're world-renowned, Nobel Prize winning. When you open your mouth, people not only listen, they take notes. You're that kind of individual. Now, group A, group B, open your eyes. And I want you to do this. Grab under your seat, and there's a Trivial Pursuit card. I want you to just pick one question, whatever question it might be. You just grab a hold of it. 
And in the midst of that question, whenever you find the question, I want you to answer it. Give yourself a little bit of a, don't, don't peek, don't cheat, right? And then turn around. For me, I'm holding a card that says, um, which U.S. cities are flying between the airport codes on your ticket are ATL and PDX, okay? That's, I think, Atlanta and Portland, which is right. When I turn it over, um, I cheated, right? And, um, but how did you do? How, how did you answer the question? Did you win? Did you lose? Here's what's interesting. What I just did for you is actually a classical psychology experience. Uh, the experiment got two, dips, two different groups in the room. One group was told to do the very thing that group A did. The other, thing, the other group was told to do exactly what group B did. Now, equal education, same kind of pedigree training, equal IQs. So this is, there's this control consistency across group A and group B. And what happened was that consistently group B got more answers right than group A. Group A had the same intelligence. Group A came from the same background academically. But group B won and answered more questions correctly. And the reason why? It's because right before they answered the question, they were told to imagine they were a brilliant professor. The experiment demonstrated that one simple thought, one simple thought, could influence and impact another. Just by thinking you're smarter, you answered questions more correctly. Now, here's what's profound. It's been predicted, estimated, based on numerous studies, that the average American has about 50,000 thoughts a day. You just heard about an experiment and took part in an experiment that showed the impact of one thought in your day. Imagine the impact, the influence of 50,000 thoughts zooming, flying, bouncing around your head. You just saw how one thought, one frame of mind, can shape a small picture of your life. Imagine what 50,000 of them can do every single day. For many of us, it's our inner voices that have the greatest impact on our life. And that the frame of your mind and my mind, whether you're a small child or whether you're a senior citizen and everyone in between, that the frame of your mind affects the picture of your life. And while 50,000 thoughts are a lot of thoughts that we do not have time to dive into, let me dive into one subset that I think is probably the trickiest one to deal with, so maybe I get brownie points for trying, but it's also, I think, the one that has the greatest impact. It's one that all of us can relate to because we've all found ourselves in a moment where that one voice was influencing and impacting our choices, and it's the voice of insecurity. It's that voice of insecurity that says you're not enough, you're not smart enough, you're not wise enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not fill-in-the-blank enough. It's that thing that stirs up that all of us can relate to. It's that voice that I think probably more than any other voice inside of us that impacts and influences. And what I want to do today is I want to take you to a song, an ancient song found in the Bible. It's a song that speaks to and demonstrates and shows us how we can study 
kind of the mechanism of insecurity. Because here's the thing about insecurity. If you can learn how insecurity works against you, you can also learn how to make it work for you. Because insecurity is like a virus. It infects our body and it hijacks the natural processes that we have. Processes that were meant to bring us life, that were meant to bring us joy, that were meant to bring us peace of mind. Insecurity affects us like a virus and works against us. And I want to show you how in our time together in a miraculous miracle kind of feat of tackling this huge, huge idea of insecurity and show you how you can use it, that mechanism that powers it to work for you in your life, not against you. The psalm is Psalm 139, and Psalm is the Psalm 139 is found in a book uh, in the Old Testament called Psalms. And Psalms are not a word that you and I probably use every day. You don't say, "Hey, did you hear that new Psalm by Beyonce? It was incredible!" Right? Psalm is a Jewish word. It's the the Book of Psalms were the ancient Jewish people's songbook. One of the most prolific songwriter, poem writer in the Jewish faith, one of the individuals that we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks that we've looked at his life and his children's life because he's a powerful example to pull and learn from, is David, Israel's greatest king. David is the kind of most prolific writer of Psalms. And David writes in Psalm 139 um, a series of what we kind of broken out into 24 verses. And I want to work through the entire psalm today, and I'm going to do it in a way that's going to engage your mind, and we're going to have to kind of work the process. But here's the thing. I want you to participate mentally with me, because I'm going to ask you questions as we move through. And it's critical that you're answering these questions for your life, because I cannot. I can't answer some of the questions that I have for you. I would love to sit down and have coffee with every single one of you and just dialogue about this. But this is my opportunity, so this is how we have to frame it. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where I want to start, is a simple prayer. And this is how David ends this psalm. This great warrior king and songwriter writes this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He writes that prayer at the end of this psalm for a specific reason that we don't fully know historically. When you work through the psalm, you will find that 1 through 18 is very poetic and picturesque, and then 19 through 22 gets a little weird, and then he ends with this prayer. And what we can know from looking at 19 and 22, because this is what he says in 19 through verse 22, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Told you it was a little different, right? Here's the thing you need to know. David is the king of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel at this time is a theocracy, which is not a normal word you and I use regularly. But a theocracy, especially in this time frame, most people understood that nations, when they went to war, were not nations battling each other. They were gods battling each other. That was the mindset back then, that when one nation went to war, it was really the two gods or their gods that would fight. 
So for David, when he thinks about leading a nation, he's thinking about those people who are trying to attack his nation because whatever is going on in David's life at this time seems to be some foreign nation and some kind of raiding army or some type of situation that stirred him and that's threatened him and that's caused him as a king to cry out to God. Remember, God, when nations fight, our gods fight, and I need you, God, to step into this situation. So while that may not necessarily be something that you and I can relate to, what we can relate to is there is a situation that has stirred him. There is a circumstance that has shaken him to his core, and he's not sure about his nation. He's not sure about his leadership. He's not sure about this enemy that's trying to come into his life. And so he writes this prayer because he's having a lot of anxious thoughts. Can you relate to that? Maybe you don't know what it's like to have an enemy army invading your homeland, but you do know what it's like to have other things pushing and pressing into your life. And out of this circumstance, out of this situation, whatever it may have been, David writes this beautiful prayer, search me and know my heart, test me and know my thoughts, my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And what he does in the midst of this is he lays out two different paths. This anxious, offensive path, in this everlasting way. And David, I think, even in the midst of of writing this down and recording this poem or song, he actually models for us and helps us. So here's what I want to do, because insecurity is a really tricky thing. I wrestle through, man, can I really tackle insecurity in 30 minutes? And so I want to give you a tool. The tool today isn't something that you run out and you can start to kind of pull the levers and turn the gears and it starts to work. It's a tool to help you visually understand how insecurity works against you. See, I think insecurity is a lot like what's been going on up here. That when I started this message while you had your eyes closed, imagining stabbing someone or speaking to an audience, I dropped three tea bags into my water. And in the course of about 10 minutes, What's happened is that that water that I began with has now turned into tea. What was clear has now gone dark. And that insecurity works a lot like steeping. That deep inside of all of us are certain lies steeping. And the right circumstance, the right situation stirs that up. And that insecurity starts to spread. And what was this little tiny small thing over here soon starts to fill the entire container of our mind. And those voices get louder and louder and it starts to influence our choices. And soon we find ourselves driving down the road or walking to a conversation with someone and all of a sudden our minds have gotten cloudy, our hearts have gotten anxious, and we're insecure. And it works a lot like what you see with these tea bags. Deep inside of our hearts are some things that are steeping And when that situation stirs it up, it starts to spread, and soon it's everywhere. And this is the tool I want to give you. This is the mental model for understanding how insecurity works, because if you can understand how it works against you, you can begin to understand how to leverage it for you. So here's a little bit of an insight that I would like to give you, because I think it's part of it, not just understanding the steeping component, it's also helpful to know where these tea bags come from in the first place? Like, where did these things come from? 
And there are three E's that I would encourage you maybe just to write this down. But before you write these three E's down, here's the question I want you thinking about as I work my way through. David, whatever it happened to be, some situation stirred and shook him up. And now he's crying out to God, God, help me search my anxious thoughts. So what is the situation? Who are the someones that make you feel insecure? Whatever comes to mind, just write it down. Connection cards, the, the, the thing we walked in, or maybe in the message notes in the app where you, there's a little kind of space there to write and record your thoughts. But what are the situations? What are the someones that make you feel insecure? There's probably people, whether they're in your cafeteria, in your school, whether they're in the cubicle beside you at work, whether it's your neighbor and them driving up with the Tesla, right? Whatever it may be, what are the situations and the someones that stir up your insecurity? Now, with that question in mind, let me walk you through what I think the three tea bags can be. They're one of three E's for many of us. The first E is echoes from our past. They're the echoes of things that people have said in our lives, and they stuck. They went down deep. They filled up that bag and they stayed. And they started to steep and they started to seep and it started to spread. And things that you heard when you were in middle school still continue to haunt you in your insecurity in your 30s, in your 40s, and in your 50s. Words like fat, dumb, stupid, nobody. Right? Those kind of words that were flippantly thrown, thrown around. Maybe you'd, you developed a little later than all the other people around you. Those words just got lobbed at you regularly. And without you even realizing, it went deep. And it stuck. And things that people said when you were eight years old can still seep and steep inside of you when you're 80. Or maybe it's echoes of what you wish you had heard. You Instead of hearing, I love you, I'm proud of you, you just heard, uh, you'll never amount to anything. Those unspoken things that never got said. What are those echoes for you? The next D is experiences we've had. It's not just things people have said, it's been things that people have done. Maybe for some of you, like me, growing up, you were bullied. And it's amazing, a person that I can't tell you their name today, but I can still remember their face and what they did. And how as a 12-year-old, it still is stuck down deep if I'm not careful. And it can start to steep, and it can start to stir and spread. So there's experiences. Maybe it was growing up, and you had a sister who was smarter than you, and you always got told she was smarter than you. Or maybe it's the experiences you didn't have. You have coworkers who went to college and you didn't. Or you have coworkers who went to that college and you didn't. And when they start to open their mouths, you feel a little insecure on the inside because everyone knows they have that, that degree in their office. Or maybe you grew up in a certain kind of neighborhood or town and 
you've never been able to kind of get over what people associated with that and how they've associated it with you. Those experiences that we had. And it doesn't always have to be our childhood. It can be something that happened when you're an adult. Maybe it was the, the time you got cheated on and the affair or the lies that you were told or the way that you sit at a lunchroom table every single day and people just walk by you and not sit down with you. But those things go down deep. And the last D is expectations. And this one is tricky because sometimes they're expectations you got placed on you, and sometimes they're expectations you've placed on yourself out of what you saw growing up. Right? You let them kind of just stick. You somehow grew up with the expectation or this realization from what you saw how people treated one another that in my house you had to perform to be loved. That how you did on the ball field influenced everything else in your life. Or that success means winning in these areas and that we allow those experiences we allow those echoes of what's been said we allow those expectations to shape us and to to make us lead us into decisions that we regret that those three e's deep inside of us steeping inside of us seeping out of us eventually influence the way we parent your insecurity as a parent and all the stuff that the other kids are doing in your school or in your kids' friends, can make you push your kids to places that you would never have pushed them before. Because it's not about you, it's not about them, it's about your insecurity that gets stirred up. Well, I need to push them harder. Not for their success, but because something inside of you has been stirred. Something inside of you has been pushed. That it can make us make purchases that we would have never purchased, but everyone else is around us, and it's just stirred up this insecurity. I need that house, or I need that car, or I need that particular clothing, or we need to go on that kind of vacation because all the news feeds keep reminding me of what I'm not participating in. We live in a culture that has energized and monotonized, whatever that word is, like they make money off your insecurity. Social media is a highlight reel designed and determined to stir up anxiety and advertises leverage that to make you go buy things that you would have never bought had you not seen it on someone else's feed. Because they know something about you and I that we often don't know about ourselves is that deep inside of us, steeping inside of us, are these burning questions, these echoing thoughts, these haunting expectations and experiences that make us feel less than worthy, that, that make us question our value and our worth, and it causes us to try to keep up with everyone and to compare ourselves with everyone. Because what stirs you? What's the situation and who's the someone? It's important to know that because then you can start to, when you realize that, you can start to recognize which one of you, what, which one of these E's are playing out inside of you. You catch yourself in the jealous moments. You catch, your, you catch yourself doing things that you know you wouldn't have done or in those moments that we've all seen where someone talks about their vacation and going to, you know, maybe over the weekend you went to the mountains in Vermont. And someone's like, well, 
you know, I happened to go to the Rockies last week. Right? You know, the, the one-up stories, that's insecurity. I got to, whoa, 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 I can't let you beat me in a story. I got to one-up you. And it causes us to do silly, stupid, or sometimes significant things, all out of insecurity. So what do we do? How do we navigate? How do we work? How do we use what's happening here against us? How do we leverage it for us? And here is how I want to show you that. I'm going to run through verses quick, but I'm going to summarize them so that you grab hold of what David does for us in this psalm that I believe we can use to work for us. So David begins with Psalm 139 with these words. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue to you, Lord, you know it completely. I said, here's what David's doing for us. I started at the end because I wanted you to understand why David writes this psalm the way he writes it. That there's some situation, there's some circumstance that has stirred up some things inside of him. And so what does he do? He sits down, he recognizes there's some stuff going on the inside. And he's not just okay with recognizing it, he's intentionally replacing it. He writes these words because he's talking to himself as he's talking to God. He knows that the best way to count, the best way to to really work against a lie is to replace it with a truth. You don't argue with a lie. You replace it with a truth. Right? I mean, I, one of my jobs in, in college or in grad school was I was a floating bank teller. And, uh, and part of going and becoming a bank teller is you had to be trained on counterfeit money. You know what they don't do to train you with counterfeit money? They don't bring in all these counterfeit bills and say, look at them, feel them, take pictures of them, you know, hold them up to the light. That's not how they train you with counterfeit bills. The way they train you with counterfeit bills is you just spend time touching and handling real money. This is what David knows. If I spend enough time with the truth, it'll help me spot the lies when they creep by. And this is what he's doing. He's, he's literally just taking a note. He's, he's writing down this song so that his heart and his mind can be reminded and replace the insecurities burning inside of him. He says all of that through one through four because here's the central truth he wanted himself to be aware of is that God is aware of him. Sometimes in our insecurity, we, can, we want to get someone's attention. Isn't That's why we tell the one-up story. We want somebody to notice our story, our life. Well, I just launched a, a, a new business. Oh, I'm, I've got this new venture in my life. As we want to be noticed. And David says, one through four, God, you are aware of me. You, you search me. You know me. When I sit down, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You're aware of me. And then he continues in verse 5, You hem me in from behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will uphold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light 
to you. He's like, God, not only are you aware of me, but that you are there with me. He does this subtle thing that you would have had to have been in Israel to understand, where he says that the, the rising of the dawn and the far kind of the, the sea. Well, in Israel, the sun is on the east and the sea is on the west from where he is. He's geographically, he's like, God, you're above me. You're, you're beneath me. You're around me. You surround me from that side to that side. There is nowhere I can go to get away from you. You are aware of me and you are there with me. Because sometimes being lonely can stir up some insecurity. Sometimes feeling like no one else in the world, not just notices you, but even cares about you, can stir up insecurity. He's like, you're aware of me. You're there with me. And he continues. And probably some of the most beautiful, poetic, picturesque words David ever writes. He says, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you know you're fearfully and wonderfully made? You are not some off-shelf brand. You are an original. You are not a copy. You are not dogs playing poker. Right? You are a masterpiece. Wonderfully, fearfully made. You are his idea. Your mama and your daddy did not come up with you. They just facilitated the process. God came up with you. You were his idea. He thought you up. And he doesn't stop. He's like, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David's like, man, how do I even begin to understand? I am your design. You thought me up. My eye color, my hair color, my height, who I, who I am. He came up with that. He's like, and not only that, God, you think about me. You ever notice how someone, when you're going through a rough time, just a simple note that says, hey, I was thinking about you today, changes it? There are people today that if I just get a text message from them and they say, hey, I was thinking about you today, that does something on the inside of me. It lifts me up a little bit. And David's sitting there saying, God, you are thinking about me. And if I were to count them, if I were to actually sit down and try to figure this out, I would my brain would just kind of explode because there are more thoughts about me that you have than there are grains on the shore. That's a lot, isn't it? And I think many of us live with a disconnect. And this is why David is sitting there and he's telling himself that God is aware with him. He is there with him. And this last section is that he cares for him. Because when you know someone cares for you, that's, that's a game changer. And he's like, God, you are aware of me. You are there with me and you care for me. And he's writing these words down to remind himself of the truth that in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the struggle, this is what is true about me. This are, these are the bags that should be steeping deep inside my heart, that God is there, he's aware, and that he cares. 
And if you're in this room or you're listening online and you're a Christian, this is the very essence of our faith is that God's declaration and demonstration that he is aware, that he is there, that he cares is Jesus Christ. God's like, how do I make them? Because I don't know if you noticed about us humans, we sometimes miss things. It's like, how do I make them get it? Right? It's like a few weeks ago, we lost a loved one in my house, Princess Elizabeth Causey. She was a one-year-old, beautiful Siamese female beta, and we lost her in the, the, the wee hours of the afternoon. And I remember we spent about $50 to $70 trying to save this fish's life, and I got really invested, not just financially, but because I knew I was going to have to tell a five-year-old little girl that her first ever pet just died. And so I'm sitting there, and in her final moment, she's struggling, which is really kind of sad to watch a fish struggle, and because um, you don't think about that when you eat them, but when you're you're watching them struggle, and and this and Princess is swimming up and and then swimming back down, and I'm like, she's a fish, why is she breathing air, right? And, and I'm sitting there and I'm staring at her and I'm like, oh, I wish I could just tell Princess that I care about her, that I just ordered stuff on Amazon, that help is on the way. Hang in there, girl. I got you. I'm with you. I'm for you. Please don't die. My girl's going to break down, right? I am like speaking to this fish and Princess is like kind of this weird little swim away from me. And, and it's just like this thought, man, if I could just poof, turn into that little fish and drop into her little thing, I could swim up and be like, hey, Princess, that big bald dude that looms, he's actually for you. He cares about you. I know you don't know what a dollar is, but he just spent 70 of them on Amazon to get you saved. He's for you. And that is the message of Christianity, that in our brokenness and our death, that God stepped into the world to demonstrate and to declare that he is aware that he is there, and that he cares for you and I. That's the, the headline of Christianity, is that God died on the cross, and he came back from the dead, and doing so, he brought victory, and he brought life. And I just wonder, in the last few minutes we have together, what would your life look like? What would those insecure moments look like if you knew that God was with you and for you, that he was aware of you and there with you and that he cared for you? How would you parent? How would you make decisions? How would you live your life? How would you make purchases? I think that if we really allowed that to go deep in our heart, if we were focusing, memorizing, meditating, reflecting on God is aware there and he cares, it would start to do something deep inside of us. It would change how we act in our schools. It would change how we act in boardrooms, around conference tables, or around the kitchen table. We would start to act different. You know why? Because we would move from steeping insecurity deep inside of our hearts to stepping into security. Right? I mean, when... I think this brings a little bit of a holy swagger. 
You're like, it's okay my circumstances have stirred me up on the inside. It's okay that you have that car. It's okay you have that house. I'm not threatened by that. I'm not defined by that. I got the FDIC up in heaven, baby. God has put his deposit on me and said, I am secure in him. He is aware of me. He is there for me and he cares for me. I got that going on the inside of my life. And so it's okay if I don't have these other things going in my life. I think it would actually start to shape and change the way we live our lives. I want this desperately for my five-year-old little girl. I want her to know that beauty is not defined by the clothing that she wears or the hairstyle that she has or the body frame that she does not have. I want her to know that beauty and security comes from the inside. It is that God has already looked over you and said, fearfully and wonderfully made, Ella. That you are beautiful. You are my design. I thought you up. Your mama and your daddy just facilitated my greatest masterpiece. I want her to grow up with that. I want you and I to walk and to steep deep in that. And it's what God wanted for us too. And that regardless, even if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about faith, imagine your life if you were just open to him being aware of you, there for you, and care for you. David writes this a thousand years before Jesus is even born. He's letting it already steep down deep. And so no matter where you are in your, your faith journey, I think if there's a little bit of faith and you're open to God, would you be open to this? That he's aware that he's there and that he cares. And if you're processing through, or maybe you're not even sure you believe in faith, just start replacing the lies you have in your life with truth. Let those kind of go down deep. Just let that steep for a little bit. You'll find the difference is made then too. But I'm telling you, if you want to walk in joy, you want to walk in peace, you want to walk in security, you let the reality of who he is start to steep deep inside of your heart and whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you let it stir. You'll find that when those circumstances come, what gets stirred up are the good, the beautiful, the lovely things that you are secure in him, that he is aware and he's there and that he cares for you. And that you would find in those moments the freedom to celebrate others' strengths and to be inspired, not threatened by people's giftedness. And to be grateful for what they have, even when you don't have it too. Because it's hard to celebrate and admire and be inspired and to be grateful for what others have that you don't have if you don't have security. And this is what David does for us. He models for us how you and I can begin to move from steeping insecurity to stepping into security. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the the hope that you bring, the, the reality that you are aware, that you are there, and that you care for us. I pray that uh, in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, that we would allow the truth of this to go deep that we would process and reflect even this week on those moments of insecurity that we may experience. That you would make us um, sensitive to those situations and those someones who stir up insecurity inside of us. And that we would begin to walk in security, not be defined by insecurity. And so thank you. Thank you for the freedom that you bring, for the courage that you can bring, for the life that you bring out of the words that we read today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Sorry, I went a little long and I got all fired up. I was telling you, man.
But just imagine, right? I can just imagine you free. I can imagine you walking, living your life out of that place of freedom. And I know we all want that. And so thank you for allowing me to tackle a huge kind of massive struggle that we all have. And uh, out of this, what we want to do today in the response is we always end with a song to allow those truths to kind of give a little bit of space for it to go down deep, kind of steep a little bit. And so today we're going to end with a song called You Make Me Brave. And it's just this declaration, man, that when we start to let those things go down deep inside of us, what happens is courage. What happens is a willingness to stand tall and to walk straight and not to allow the circumstances and the situations we find ourselves to define us. And we want to use that song as just a chance for you to maybe process through those questions you have, whatever those situations may be. It's also a place that we use um, just logistically. We are a generous people. Tonight, we've rented out um, a launch trampoline park. Hundreds of people will show up from our community. And we will do that simply because we believe a church should be known for what they do for the community, not what they take from. Right? That God was for us. That he made a way for us. He wasn't sneaking into earth to try to get something from us. He was stepping into earth to do something for us. And so we just, out of that, we believe love does. It's really simple. And so we are able to practice love does. We're able to give money away. We're able to make a difference here, there, and everywhere because of the generosity. And so for those who call Encounter Church Home, we use this moment to kind of set aside that discipline of giving. And so you'll see people kind of putting money in the basket or maybe kind of on their phones doing something. And this is what they're doing. It's just we're generous people because we're generous people. And, um, and for those who are maybe new or you're still kind of exploring, I, I would just encourage you to use this as a way to uh, maybe let us know how we can pray for you or if you're open to maybe some a, a class or a group that's exploring faith or maybe you're interested in growing in faith and kind of experiencing what I'm talking about, to use that time to just sign up inside our app on the starting point that we've created intentional spaces and places for all of us to be able to move towards a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. So I want to invite you to stand. The band's going to come and lead us, and we'll sing and respond. And then uh, someone will come up and dismiss you. And as you stand, let me give you a disclaimer. Next week, uh, just as a heads up, we will be updating our video system. So our video system, our podcasting system, will be down. And I'm going to use that opportunity. I'm, I'm going to talk about this one thing that has been kind of looming out there for some of us. I want to take and press into the difficult, because we talk about how to beat the odds, right? What happens when the odds beat you? What happens when the marriage isn't turning out the way you hoped it would, or you are in a place of financial ruin, or you have those scars that continue to follow you? We're going to press into that next week. We're going to talk about how to deal with the odds when the odds beat you. And that'll be how we wrap up our series. So I would encourage you to be here because you're not going to be able to listen or see it because of what we're having to do with our system. But it's going to be real. And we're going to press into it. And we're going to talk about how do you walk out of freedom even when you find yourself in the midst that you can actually have liberty even if you have a limp. And uh, so I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week. Bam will lead us and we'll respond.